Well, uh, welcome to uh, the Soteriology Q&A uh, with uh, Pastor Ron and Will. And uh, first, I want to thank you guys for uh, your prep and time put into this class. Uh, we know it, it costs you something um, to step away and give time to prepping, so, um, and it's for the body, so for our encouragement and growth, and I'm sure the Lord has worked in both of your hearts as you walk through this stuff, so thank you. Thank you. Let's get started with the Q&A. Um, question number one. How should you interpret passages that seem like a general call, i.e., come to me all or whoever believes in me, in light of passages that speak of the chosen and elect? Yeah. Um, one of the previous classes, uh, I don't know if you all remember, um, was about the general call and the internal call. That was a class that we had a couple of weeks ago. And I stressed on the differences between the general call and the internal call. And we, in scripture we see, uh, just like the question is posing, that there are passages that seem like God is calling every single person in the world. Um, and you see that his intention and his desire, um, at least in, um, in the way that he interacts with mankind, is that, of course, he, he wants everyone to be saved in that sense. Um, but behind all that, we, we know that God um, is not acting in history just as things go. He's not just doing things as things happen. He has, he has a plan, and he's always had a plan before uh, creation even existed. This is his eternal decree. And although he desires that everyone uh, uh, would come to him and be saved, in his eternal decree, he's decreed that only some would eventually come. So just to give you some passages to show you what, um, what those two things, uh, or how those two things are seen in scripture, we see Matthew eleven twenty eight, where it says, come to me, this is Jesus, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is a general call to everyone. Um, you also see uh, the famous verse, John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, and then, so you have that general uh, call for everyone, but then you have other passages that say, for example, in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Um, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, and, and you see passages where, again, he's, he's giving a general call, but some passages that say, okay, this is, this is something that you have to remember, that even though the call is general, God has decreed that only some would uh, respond to that call. So we, the way that we interpret these passages is that we have to allow these passages not to be contradictions, mm -hmm. yeah. but rather as two separate categories, right? God sends forth a general call, um, but he's willed that only a few would respond. And, and God sees that, according to God's uh, wisdom, God sees that as the way that he would get ultimate glory in the end. So um, again, they're not contradictions, they're just uh, two different categories. But ultimately God, God chooses those who will eventually uh, respond and come to him so yeah no that's that's great um i was just going to add to that in the passage that will quoted in matthew 11 and also that was part of the part of the question um where jesus says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest that there's that general call but if you look right before that in verses 25 through 27 yeah. jesus says this at that time jesus declared I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right, so there's there's Jesus saying he's he's revealing to people who the Father is, who the true and living God is, and then right after that he says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden." 
right? So here you have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man running side by side. And, and the thing that we don't want to do, and that some have tried to do, is to try to figure out how do those work, right? And there's nothing wrong with trying to figure out how that works, but it's a labor and futility in, in essence. Only eternity is going to reveal it because you see these general calls going out to all men, and yet we know that before the foundation of the world, God ordained some to receive that and, and to believe that truth. So um, how you, to go back to the question, how do you interpret those? You interpret them, uh, not to be overly simplistic, but just as they are in the scripture. You don't want to try to read into them uh, something that, that isn't there, but you have those categories in mind. You know that the gospel goes forth to all men, and behind that call is this effectual call that God has ordained before the foundation of the world for people to, to believe. That's good. Thank you. That's helpful. That's helpful. That's a really good question, too. I'll pose that one. Um, all right, the second question in our lineup here. Does a believer receive the Holy Spirit after conversion or before? If after, how does the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin if you haven't received him yet? Yeah. Uh, so, again, just to kind of simplify the question, we've seen in Scripture um, where uh, we see some who come to faith first, right? They believe, and then subsequently, after that, they receive the filling of the Holy Spirit upon them. And, you know, what you hear often when we teach, or, or even when you read, uh, let's say, a systematic theology book or any book on uh, being born again, uh, we, we, we see in theology that the only way a person can be born again is, is if the Spirit of God uh, changes that person's heart. And, and we know uh, when the Spirit does that, that he dwells in them permanently. He seals them. He lives in them. Uh, but then you read Acts, right? You read in the book of Acts, and we see uh, something else happen. We see times where there are believers, they come to faith, and then we see a subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit either falling on them or filling them or empowering them. And it's important that we read, especially when we read the book of Acts, uh, when, when we read that, it's important to be careful to understand that those two things are two different things that are going on. Um, when we read this, we have to make the, distinct, the distinctions uh, between descriptive uh, passages that speak on being born again or being born of the Spirit and other passages that say that the Spirit then came and empowered the individual. Um, some people call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's simply the concept of even though they're born again, there's a subsequent experience of the Spirit where the Spirit empowers them to do a certain act or a certain deed during that period of time. We see in uh, John 3.3 3, uh, that Man can't even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, right? So we have to remember that, that the things of God are spiritually discerned. Therefore, a, a work of the Spirit in regenerating man's heart is a prerequisite. There's no being born again or coming to faith, and then the Spirit comes and does a work. The Spirit has to do a work in order for you to even see the kingdom of God, for you to even believe. And so we, we have to attribute regeneration, a person coming to faith, we have to attribute that to the work of the Spirit. Uh, it says this, 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 things of God are spiritually discerned. Uh, and this is why uh, the work of the Spirit in regenerating man's heart is a prerequisite. It also says in John 3, 6, uh, it refers to this as being born of the Spirit. And so again, born, being born again is a work of the Spirit. But again, we also read about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when you see that uh, incident in Acts 2, where these people were already believers and they were already regenerated, um, yet they were empowered to do the Spirit's work for, for whatever cause God had for that specific moment. So again, just knowing the distinctions. Just because you see a passage in Scripture that says that the person believed and then later on you see where the Spirit empowers them, it doesn't mean that they were born again apart from the Spirit's work, or there's a subsequent being born again experience of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the work of the Spirit, being born again, and, and anything after that is simply the Spirit empowering them uh, to, do a, to accomplish a certain act 
during that point in history. And again, I, I want to say also, even in the Old Testament, it was the same way. Uh, those, who were, those who believed in the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerated their heart. Um, but we also see incidents, incidences in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit would, in a separate act, come and empower that person to accomplish a specific task that God had uh, called him to do. Yeah. So I don't know if that's clear. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Yeah, something else that I think is, is really important in this is when we understand the nature of man and, and sin, um, that helps us to understand why the Spirit has to do this work, right? So there's nothing in man. Like when you go and preach the gospel to somebody, there's not something in man that desires to respond to the gospel apart from God causing that person to respond to the gospel. And so you look at all these different passages that talk about man by nature is a child of wrath. In Ephesians 2, we see that. Romans 8, that man by nature is at enmity with God. He's at war with God. Um, so in order for man to obey the gospel command to repent and believe, his heart has to be changed first in order to do that. Um, I think Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27 uh, is a really helpful passage. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then notice what he says here. And this is a helpful passage. If you just go back and you just read all the I wills of God talking about I will and just circle all the time it says I will, and it's just overwhelmingly convincing that this is the work of God. So he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and then notice this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So genuine obedience to the commands of God requires a new heart. That heart must be changed. So if a person does repent and believe the gospel, which is a command from God, they do so because their heart has been changed in order to respond uh, to that call. Um, so when we understand the nature of man and his depravity, um, it helps us to recognize God must do this. He has to change the heart. And on top of that, that that's the hope that we have as we go and we preach the gospel. I'm not trying to work within that person's natural heart to say, I wonder if there's a way that I could say this, that I could, I could manipulate this a little bit and maybe draw them to Christ. Just trust the word of God, trust the power of the gospel, and pray fervently that God will take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh just as he did for us. That's good. Thank you. That's helpful. <clears throat> All right, our third question here. How does the doctrine of election play into our union with Christ? Yeah, uh, how does the doctrine of election play into our union with Christ? Um, I'm looking at Ephesians 1, um, verses 11 through 14. Uh, in fact, I'll read it. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were... Um, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the doctrine of election, I mean, you see it in Ephesians that uh, we've obtained an inheritance uh, and that inheritance that we obtain is an inheritance that was accomplished by Jesus Christ himself. He, he came to earth, he accomplished, uh, or he succeeded in righteousness, in active obedience and passive obedience, right, in his death. Um, and all these things are applied to us. All that he purchased, all that he accomplished is applied to us, is given to us. But it says in verse uh, Verse 11, that we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who, and this is his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
you know, God's glory is the ultimate goal of this whole story. Um, and the doctrine of election is important because it, apart from God decreeing this to come to pass, um, we see that we would never have union with Christ. We would never receive the inheritance on our own or based on our own will, our own works. Um, first of all, because we don't have the power to achieve what Christ has achieved. We, we don't have it merely because we're sinners and we've inherited the nature and the corruption and the guilt of Adam. So on our own, we, we constantly fail. We can never achieve what Christ has achieved. God has elected a few that they would be united to Christ so that we would partake in this inheritance, right? Um, and again, the, the doctrine of election is important. It's vital to our union with Christ. And I would say it's vital to even your salvation. Um, just like what Ron was saying, if you were left on your own, you would never choose Christ. If you were, uh, if you were even, even if this religion was preached to you, you would not uh, consider it. You would not go to it naturally. You would um, reject it because it's contrary to your desires. It's contrary to your, the will of your heart. So it requires God to ordain and elect these things to come to pass. Um, and at the right time in history, God makes that effectual in your life. He... Uh, Minutes before your salvation, you were a rebel against God. And then that very moment in which God had preordained, he said, and this time at 938, and this day, April 30th, uh, this young lady is going to come to Christ. And his election, his predetermination that you would come at that hour, um, God pours his spirit into your heart, you believe, and you're united with Christ. And apart from him ordaining that, um, you would have never chosen that path. Yes. Uh, and so that's why it's important to see the doctrine of election as vital, as, as very relevant, as very much a part of your salvation. And so I, I say that in answering the question, how does it tie with our union with Christ? I'd say it ties perfectly. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's very much essential to your, yeah. to your salvation. Amen. Yeah, and back up in <laughs> Ephesians 1 um, and verses uh, 3 and 4, you have the same thing that Will just talked about there. Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as he chose us, so there's election, in him before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 4, you have the relationship between election and union with Christ. He chose us in him. So we were elected to be in union with Christ. Mm -hmm. We were elected to be taken out of union with Adam, with which we're, who, we're, who we, we were united with by nature, and brought into union with Christ. So that's how that works. God elected us to be in union with his son and to be taken out of union uh, with, with Adam. Amen. That's, that's good. Uh, these are really good questions. Uh, this next question is good as well. Seem, seems to have a similar uh, tone to it. It reads, we are one with Christ in union with him, but the Holy Spirit is indwelling and often, as mentioned, as such. What is the distinction between these two concepts? The phrase, in your heart, is often used in conjunction with both. Yeah, this is a good question because I, I, I remember, like, growing up as a Christian, um, you know, I was always taught you're, you're united to Christ or you're... you're you're one with Christ. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, you know, I just accepted it as biblical truth, but what does that actually mean that you're one with Christ? Um, and, you know, what is, what is that union? And then, and then when it came to the Holy Spirit, that was sort of easier to understand. Oh, we, we know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's easy, thinking metaphysically, like, okay, um, the Holy Spirit is in me, but what does it mean to be united in Christ? What are the distinctions between those two concepts? Uh, and I wanted to say that we're united to Christ by imputation. And imputation is basically a legal term uh, that simply means uh, ascription a, a or something ascribed to you. When something is um, ascribed to you, you're counted as something and that's what it means that you're united with Christ. You're united to him because God has declared 
and he's righteously declared it, he's not doing this by cheating um, the, the laws of, of, of uh, righteousness and holiness. God is not sneaking you into heaven. He righteously declared you as holy, even though you are actually not righteous. He's declared you righteous, even though you really aren't righteous in and of yourself. But positionally, you are. And the only reason why you are is because Christ is righteous, and there was a substitution that happened, right? He, his righteousness is now attributed or imputed to you, and your sinfulness was imputed to him on the cross. That's why he paid for your sin. That's why he was punished as if he was you. So there was a swap that took place there. Uh, and in that sense, you're united to Christ because you're counted as if you live the righteous life and you live the perfect life and you live holy just like Christ did. And that, that's a miracle, but that's how we're united to him. Now, um, God has transferred all that has been accomplished by Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. He's transferred it to us and that's, that's how we're united to him. Our union with Christ is positional and it's not mystical or metaphysical, right? You're not you're not united to him in some weird, mystical, metaphysical way. However, when we talk about how those things have been applied to you, that's where we talk about the Holy Spirit. The, the scriptures indicate that it's all that is Christ, all that he accomplished, is applied to you by the Spirit indwelling in you or transforming your heart and entering in us and transforming, us, transforming our hearts. And you'll see that there is a transformation even in our sanctification by the mere fact that the Spirit dwells in us. Because he dwells in you, you're actually becoming more like Christ in reality, like in time and history. You're becoming more like him because the Spirit uh, lives in you. Um, but this, uh, this union that we have in Christ is, is God declaring that you are um, righteous, that you are in Christ. He's declaring it, he's counting you or he's counting it as if you are are him so I hope that shows the distinctions between the two yeah, yeah. Uh, you being counted in union with Christ and the spirit actually indwelling and living in you yeah I was thinking of Romans Romans 8 9 where you see the relationship there um, between union with Christ and the spirit dwelling in us um, so yeah that, that you know we may be able to look at that and say there are some distinctions but in essence it's saying the same it's saying the same thing. Romans 8, 9 says, You, who, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So there's that aspect. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Another way of saying, you know, united to him, being, being united to him. So you can't be in union with Christ and not be indwelt by the spirit. And you can't be indwelt by the spirit and not be in union with Christ. It's essentially two sides of the same coin uh, you know, that, we're, that we're looking at there. So there's not, not that hard and fast distinction between those. Right. They, there's an interplay between right. those two concepts. Right. That's good. Good stuff. All right. The next question, is the application of salvation different for those under the old covenant and the new covenant? Is the application of salvation different? Uh, or under the old and the new? I would say no. Uh, even though the new covenant wasn't formally established until Christ came, the old covenant, which I would see as a, as a covenant of works, were filled with types and shadows that always pointed to the gospel, uh, even from the beginning. We see, we see hints of the gospel even in the garden. Mm -hmm. And... Again, many under the old covenant were saved through faith in the promised Messiah that was to come. So even though now, today, we're looking backwards, we're looking at this event that happened 2,000 years ago, the cross, the fulfillment of the Messiah coming in, uh, living the life as was predicted, dying on the cross, paying for our sins, we have faith in something that happened 2,000 years ago. Those of the old covenant were placing their faith on something that was to come. But both past and future are looking at this one pinnacle point in history. Um, and so again, 
there was no other method of salvation. It was always Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen, and resurrected. Um, that was the gospel preached in the garden uh, through the types, the gospel preached to Israel through all, all the types and shadows, um, and it's the gospel that's preached, even though now it's a little bit more explicit because we can look at scripture, we have the benefit of looking at history and seeing, seeing with clarity you know, how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament types. But again, it, it was always the same. Those in the Old Covenant, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and they placed their faith, even though it wasn't all clear. It was faith of a mustard seed, um, but it was sufficient for salvation because they placed their faith in, in the salvation that was to come in the Messiah. So again, that's just to say, no, uh, the application of salvation was always the same in the sense that you were always required to believe in the saving work of the Messiah. Yeah, and yeah, amen. Um, and you know, what's unique about that is the, the old covenant believers had the benefits of salvation applied to them mm -hmm. before their salvation was actually accomplished, yeah. right? So, so they're looking forward to it. So you have, for example, in, in Genesis 15 with Abraham, um, who says that he believed the promise of God and that belief was counted to him as righteousness. And then Paul uses him as the example in Romans 4 to show that it's always been by this way. It's always been justification by faith. So, so here's Abraham being justified by faith, even though his justification had not yet been fully purchased yet in the coming of Christ uh, later on in, in you know, as the future would hold for him. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's important <coughs> to see is that um, these believers had these uh, benefits of salvation given to them uh, before their salvation was actually accomplished. Now, we have that applied to us, and it has already been accomplished. So that, there's the distinction between those two. So if, you, if, there, if there is any difference, that would be it. I think our confession sums it up really well in, in chapter 8. I want to read this. Um, chapter 8, paragraph 6, on Christ the mediator. Uh, it says this, The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, the efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. I think that's helpful. Amen. That's that is helpful. For those who have just come in, this is the Soteriology Q&A with Pastor Ron and Will. And we're just about halfway through. So we're at question number six now, which says, and you guys really pose some good questions. So. Number six says, can you describe the contrast, I'm sorry, can you describe and contrast soteriology and Christianity with that of other religions? Of specific interest are those that focus on righteous works, but more importantly, other religions declare salvation to be obtained other ways. Yeah, uh, when I wrote my answer to that, I put, I don't know enough about other religions. <laughs> So I was just going to leave it as, I don't know the answer to that question, but, um, but I, I know this though, as far as what I've observed in comparison to, uh, Christianity in comparison to other religions, mm -hmm. is um, that there's something about Christianity that is very important that no other religion has, and that is an atonement. Uh, an actual, real, historical sacrifice for sins for those who believe. Um, when you compare it to other religions, there's this, from, from, from my observation, there's this emphasis on the individual achieving some sort of righteousness with either their God or, um, I know there are other religions that are, in a sense, uh, atheistic and um, they are more on just sort of uh, helping or, or, or or benefiting yourself into a higher, or placing yourself in a higher spiritual level, some sort of experience in that, of that nature. But it's always self-driven. It's always something that man has to do to achieve some sort of status, either with God or with themselves. And only Christianity 
um, speaks of a God who um, comes down, that so loves the world that sends his son, um, sends a sacrifice to pay in full, not even like a little bit of your sins and then go ahead and try to help yourself out with the rest of it. I gave you a head start in salvation. Like he pays in full your salvation um, for those who believe. And again, uh, this in comparison to other religions says to me that love, even in the abstract, even if you're not even a religious person, love is only possible if there is an eternal um, God that exists that is love. And um, the only God that I see when you, when you place all the religions on a chartboard uh, that, that has displayed love, that is love in his very nature, is the God of Christianity. It's, it's not even uh, being a, a, a deist. Like, I believe that there is a God and that's good enough. And yeah, he's a God of love. It's specifically the triune God, um, that a, a loving God can only exist if, the, if, if God by nature is a triune God, which makes it even more specifically Christian. Uh, in other words, uh, Christianity offers something that no other religion can offer. Uh, and so I, I say that in comparison to other religions that, uh, you know, Christianity stands very much apart from other, other religions yeah, in absolutely. so many different ways. Yeah, and I think, you know, great, great points there. Um, what describes us and what differentiates us is right at the foundation, our understanding of our union with Adam. Um, he, he is the representative head. He's the covenant head for all of humanity. Uh, so that's why no matter where you go, you recognize this person is a descendant of Adam. They, they have his nature uh, you know, within them. And so that's one thing that massively differentiates us. Uh, in Islam, for example, they would look at Adam and say, yeah, we, we believe that Adam sinned, but it only affected him, and then he repented, so it was all good. It wasn't transferred to, to anybody else. And so then you have that system of works. It's like Adam was able to do something to get himself back into a right relationship with God. Therefore, everybody's able to do that. Um, and so this, this concept of union with Adam by nature differentiates us from all other, certainly differentiates us from all, the, all other religions. And therefore, the gospel differentiates us from all other religions because now what we're hoping for, looking for, recognizing is our only uh, hope of salvation is if God intervenes because man's unable to save himself. He's in union with Adam by nature, can't do anything to get out of that union unless God does something and, and comes in. And so you, here you have the gospel. What is it that, that differentiates us is that God sends Jesus. Jesus comes as the, the second Adam, the last Adam, and he does what the first Adam failed to do. He, he obeys God. He fulfills the law. He secures a righteousness for all who would trust in him. And he bears the wrath of God. So he doesn't leave sin undone. And that's another differentiator between us and other world religions is that sin doesn't need to be atoned for the way that we say it needs to be atoned for. It can be atoned for just through, you know, you're giving your best effort and, and trying to get those sins um, you know, outweighed by your righteous, by your righteous deeds. But, um, you know, so it's, it's interesting because like when you look, I was thinking of Islam in particular, when you look at Islam and you see their, their devotion, you, you can be tempted to look at them and say, man, they really think that God is, is holy because look at how they respond. Actuality, they don't because they don't recognize what it takes to appease that holy God. They think that their works are gonna somehow be able to appease it. And we say nothing less than death is going to appease this, this God. And so we, in Christianity, we, we hold the view that, that God is holy and his justice must be satisfied. The fury of his holy wrath must be appeased. Um, and then what Will said, therein is love. You're just like, what, how could you display a love like this? Yeah. Who, would, who would think of something like this? That God would become flesh <clears throat> and atone for the sins of his, uh, for, of his people. So all other religions have that system of works righteousness built into them to some degree or another. 
They flesh themselves out in various ways, but at, at its essence, all of them are seeking to do something in order to make themselves right with God. And that's interesting because it speaks to the human, it, it speaks to the, um, the awareness, the consciousness of sin that all men have. I have to do something to appease God. And therefore you have all these religious systems trying to do something to appease, appease this God. But unfortunately they come at it uh, in the wrong way. So that's the uniqueness of Christianity is God demands righteousness and he provides the righteousness that he demands. Amen. And so we're looking outside of ourselves to the righteousness of, of another Amen. and not looking within ourselves for anything to be found acceptable in the sight of God. Amen. Amen. Man, right response is thank you, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord for his mercy and grace. Amen. Um, okay, we're well, we out of time. All right, so a few more questions here. Uh, number seven, how does glorification apply to the Old Testament saints who did not die? Elijah, Enoch. Yeah, so <laughs> this was a funny one. Not a funny one. I, I just I was challenged a little bit. But um, for those of you who don't know, when we talk about Elijah and Enoch, when you read about them, they didn't die. Uh, they were raptured or taken away, but they didn't die. Um, these are Old Testament saints. And, you know, as we read the New Testament, we see that when we die, um, there, we, we don't uh, immediately receive glorified bodies, you know, the eternal state where we will be in. We don't receive that immediately. There is a specific time where God will call everyone, living and dead, people who've been dead for centuries, he would call them all at the same time. And he would resurrect the dead, he would call back down the ones that already died, unite them back to their bodies. And then he will, as, he, as, as Christ reveals himself to them in all of his glory, everyone will be transformed to their final state, the, the fullness of their sanctification, right? So you think about how you're growing now as a Christian, you're being transformed more like Christ. On that day of glorification, you'll see the fullness of that. Uh, you know how they say, um, like, you know when you're kind of sick and you're passing away and they say, oh man, you're just the shadow of your former self. Mm -hmm. Well, in Christianity, we right now are just the shadow of our future self. We're in decay. We're actually getting better. Not physically. Of course, this body will die. But one day, we will be the fullness of what we're supposed to be. Amen. We're becoming more like us. Or let me take that back. We're becoming more like Christ because that's what we were intended to be like. And that is the state of glorification. So the, the, the question is, well, what about those two dudes who <laughs> left and they never died physically? Are they glorified? Did they get a head start? Did they beat everyone else? Um, I wanted to, uh, well, I'm not going to read the verses just for the sake of time, but 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, and uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. Uh, those two verses, for me, they, they seem to indicate that the moment of glorification, that moment that I was talking about, will be at the same time for everyone. This will be the day that Christ comes uh, and, and all the dead and the living will be glorified in that state. So this makes me assume, this makes me believe that Elijah and Enoch, who were both currently in a corruptible state when they were taken away, they haven't been glorified yet. There will be a day when even they Two will be glorified, and they haven't gone beyond the intermediate state, right? The the time, the the place where you're not quite there yet. So that that's what I would yeah. think. Yeah, and I know Scott threw this through this question Is that you? last week. Sorry. Yeah, yeah <laughs> thanks. No, good. It was a great Thanks, question. Bro. It was a really good question. And uh, yeah, so just to pick up on what Will said, you know, the glorification aspect for me is easier to understand yeah. than what does their intermediate state look like right now? I think that's a harder question, but you didn't ask it that way, so I don't have to. So we're good. So glorification, they were men born with corrupt natures like the rest of mankind. So they're looking forward to that future glorification as all believers are. But their intermediate state, I don't think we can go beyond the bounds of Scripture and just say, that was miraculous. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like right now. Right. Um, 
but uh, we, we know that they're going to look different uh, than they do right now on that day of glory when, when the Lord sums up all things as well, as right. well said. Right. So we go where the Bible goes and we stop where the yeah, Bible stops. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. All right, a couple more questions. Uh, number eight, what are some dangers or pitfalls that we can face or fall into when we fail to view sanctification? Um, I'm sorry, when, when we fail to view sanctification in a, in a synergistic way rather than how we view justification monergistically? Did I say that right? I'll say it you again. You did, yeah. What are some dangers or pitfalls that we can face or fall into when we fail to view sanctification in a synergistic way rather than how we view justification monergistically? So we may need to uh, define a couple exactly. of terms. Exactly, yeah. So let's, let's because if that right. isn't understood properly, so what, what do we mean when we talk about monergism and synergism? Um, so monergism, if we just want to break the word down, mono meaning one, eragos is the word for work. So one person working. So that when we, when we say that our justification is monergistic, we're saying that God alone acted in our, in our justification. We were dead, we didn't play a part in that at all. He called us from death uh, to life through the gospel. Uh, man doesn't aid God in his regeneration in being born again, um, just as man physically uh, didn't aid his parents in, in being, being born. Uh, so there's no synergism in, in justification. Well, the word synergism, sin means with, and again, ergos, work. So synergism means to work with, implying that man uh, or, or that more than one person is active, two or more people or things are active in whatever activity it is that's being performed. So justification is monergistic, but so as the question asks here, is sanctification also monergistic? And I would answer that by saying yes and no, um, because I think you have to delineate. You can't just give a hard answer and leave it at that. You have to kind of delineate what that means. Yes, in the sense that God is working through us to bring glory to himself. So it's monergistic in that sense, that the good works that we do are those that are brought forth by God's Spirit working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, as Hebrews 13, uh, 21 says. Um, but sanctification is not monergistic in the sense that man is passive in his sanctification. I think that's the question uh, that, is, that is being asked here. Um, if we have that mindset that I'm passive in my sanctification, that, that you know God saved me and now... He's going to do the work in transforming me into the image of his son, which is a true statement. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean I just sit back on my couch and I wait for that to happen, right? I, I have commands given to me by God. I think of the one in Hebrews 12, 14, where it says, Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. So there's that if... if, if uh, sanctification was just monergistic, we wouldn't have commands like that. I mean, and that word strive means to seek after eagerly, right? So there's this, this passionate plea for us to, to work out our salvation. Um, there's a great earnestness that we ought to have in our sanctification. It, it, the danger here is if we take this kind of let go and let God, you know, mentality to sanctification, if you've ever even had that thought and tried to let that play out, you've probably by experience can testify that sin gets the upper hand in your life, yeah. right? I'm, I'm just going to put my Bible aside and not pray and not be in fellowship and just let God work in me, right? <laughs> right? And so, no, he works through means, yeah. you know, in, in order to bring this about. So the danger of having that mentality and the temptations that come with it is that you can become very passive regarding Holiness. You can become very lackadaisical, very undisciplined. Um, and, and I think the passage that really sums up um, how God works and how it is all of God working, and yet it's us also working alongside and with God being empowered by his spirit. So at the end of the day, any growth in sanctification will be soli deo gloria, right? It'll be glory to God alone. He's the one that, that did it. Um, yet it doesn't take away the responsibility that I have. So Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul's inspired to say, Therefore, 
My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? So there, there it is. That's what you ought to be doing, working that salvation out. For, so here's this ground clause underneath that command, it is God who works in you. So, right, so here's work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, so there's commands that come, but we trust that with the command comes the power through the Spirit to walk in obedience to that command. Um, but that we're... We're, we're called to. So inclinations that I have to read my Bible, to pray, to be in fellowship, at the end of the day will be seen to be inclinations that were wrought by the Spirit, and therefore he'll get all, all the glory. And yet, it doesn't change the reality that I set my alarm clock to get up, and I, you know, open my Bible with, you know, my hands, and, right, so I'm not just like, God, open my Bible for me, right, you know, that, that yeah. type of mentality. So it's important to see those side by side. And uh, I think that's, that's how the scripture lays it out. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good. No? Okay. All right, our last question here, with a few minutes we have left. Um, can we lose our salvation? Mm, that's a tough one. No, it's not tough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, it's important. It is important. Yeah, amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, no, the answer, the answer is no. We cannot lose our salvation. Um, in fact, I would even go to say it's impossible to lose your salvation yeah. because what, what Christ has done on the cross and his, his applying that work to you uh, it was done apart from you. And this is where we get that term uh, monergistic or monergism, yeah. which is that your salvation was a work of God, a miracle from God. You didn't want it. Um, you... Uh, naturally fought against it, um, and God intervened. It was a miracle, and, and, and uh, he, he gave you salvation. Your experience might have been, yeah, I placed my faith. You have all these terms that speak about you. I placed my faith in Christ, and sure you did, uh, but, but apart from the hand of God, you can't do anything, even speak. So we know ultimately that God uh, worked salvation, and he did it apart from from you, apart from anything that you would ever contribute, um, especially with the background that uh, you were born in sin and you had sinful inclinations, which would make it impossible for you to even uh, really desire or, or even, the, even the fact that you needed a new heart is something that man can't do apart from the Spirit. Uh, but a, a verse that I think just makes it plain as far as you not Losing your salvation is John 10, 28, where it says, I, this is Christ, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. End the story. I, I think, so. uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, Romans 8 is another passage that I was thinking of, verses 29 through 30, that's oftentimes referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Um, but, but listen to what this says. Um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, okay, so this is happening before you ever existed. This is election, right, God, in eternity past. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So there's that effectual call, right? You hear the gospel, you respond to it. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So salvation is of the Lord, Amen. right? And so, um, as Paul said in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, and that's where our hope lies. But this wasn't implied in the question, um, or it wasn't asked in the question, but it may have been implied. It doesn't mean that those who profess to be Christians but actually aren't, cannot walk away from the salvation they once professed. Mm. And when John is talking about false teachers in his first epistle, he puts it this way regarding these false teachers, but I think it's the principle of people walking away from the faith. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, right? So, so perseverance in the end uh, it ultimately is the evidence that we were truly his, that we were truly, truly the Lord's. Um, and unfortunately, there can be many people deceived, and there will be many people deceived who actually thought they were, that they had salvation, that will find out on that day that they didn't have it. Um, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I, I never knew you. So it wasn't, I knew you, and then I right. casted you out. I never knew you, um, you workers of lawlessness. So... Um, just so that we don't get confused with that. Because you could see somebody, hey man, it looked like they were walking with the Lord for 20 years and now they've totally denied the faith and walked away from it. They're, they're atheistic in their thinking. They're following another religion, whatever the case may be. That can rattle you if you don't have these passages underneath you to, to root you in the reality that not everybody who pr professes to have salvation actually has it. Man, that's good. That's helpful. Well, I just want to thank you guys again um, for your prep this last semester to present these classes for us to grow in grace. And thank you for your prep for the Q&A. Um, it's much appreciated. And the Lord Our has been pleasure. Faithful. Yeah, it's been a joy. Yeah. Amen. It's been a joy. Yeah. So uh, let's pray and yeah. that'll conclude our yeah. Q&A. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is sufficient for life and godliness. Lord, we pray that um, we would continue to grow in grace and that you would work these truths uh, into our hearts. Um, as it was mentioned before, Lord, please cause our roots to go deeper into the gospel and may we behold your glory in the face of Christ uh, more and more. Lord, uh, please uh, grow us in grace. Uh, do your sanctifying work in our hearts uh, as you promised to do, Lord. And we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for salvation. It only comes by your grace. Lord, you have been merciful, and we thank you for it. We pray that you would continue to uh, give Pastor Ron and Will grace, Lord, as they uh, walk through these things and um, as you continue to uh, prepare in their hearts, Lord, and as they take in these truths and communicate them to us, Lord. Um, we thank you for your grace in that, and may you work all these things, Lord, for your glory and our good as we see it. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you.